This is the Lotox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 193. I am super excited about today's show and very excited about the fact that we are fast approaching 200 episodes. Amazing. I want to thank everybody who tunes in each week. Uh, trusting that you'll get something out of it, even though the topic sometimes might seem like one that you're not interested in. I get that feedback a lot. And a lot of people end up saying to me, you know what? I have started listening every week because at the start, I used to try and skip ones that didn't sound like they meant much to me, but I listened to one and then realized, oh my gosh. And, uh, and so now Uh, a lot of you guys don't miss it for the world. And so I really, really appreciate you being here. I'm so glad it's helpful and useful. And I'm so thankful when you take the time to write a review online or to share an episode with a friend, colleague, follower who might benefit from listening to that week's particular show. You know your peeps the best. And so I'm really, really appreciative whenever you share it. So today I have an author slash architect slash engineer, Teresa Cody. And boy, is this woman a powerhouse. I came across her by chance when I was researching something for my book, uh, which I am writing. It's coming out next year. And, um, and I saw her give a talk. It was a recorded talk of hers. And I was like, wow, I wonder if this woman's written anything. And lo and behold, she's literally recently brought out her book, Rebuilding Earth. Now, that might sound like a mammoth task, and sure, it is. But what Teresa brings to the table is her deep, deep knowledge and understanding of physics, as well as the construction industry, and the power that the construction industry has to either build a better world or um, degrade uh, our planet. And uh, it's mind-blowing when you start to realise how much of an impact, for good or worse, this industry can have. And uh, Teresa's book is really, really wonderful. I, I, I don't often recommend like going cover to cover on many books. I know everyone's busy, but please do yourself a favor. She breaks it up into 12 principles and this is well beyond construction. This is actually every facet of life, including um, being aware of how, what energy we use, water, uh, and much, much more. So I, I know you're going to love this show. Uh, I encourage you to listen right through to the end. And it could well be the kind of show that you need a notepad, pen, and two cups of tea on the go. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. It's a really, really good one. So um, before we hook into this um, this chat, I wanted to mention to you that we have a brand new sponsor this month, Thera Health. Now, Thera Health are one of my favorite, favorite, favorites because uh, they bring in the Dutch test. And I know a lot of you guys have used that test uh, off the back of my interviews with Dr. Carrie Jones in the past. 
Uh, but they also make the cod liver oil that my son and I take every day. Both of us have high leptin, which is a uh, residual side effect of having lived in a water damaged building for many years. And taking a good, high quality, high dose omega 3 is really important. Obviously, uh, being able to get a bit of vitamin A and vitamin D in there is also really important for not just uh, our immune health, but heart health, brain health, joint muscle health, and overall vitality. So if you've had a conversation with your doctor or practitioner about potentially taking some omega-3s and that being a good course of action for you, I cannot recommend the Nordic Naturals Arctic Cod Liver Oil any anymore. So it's sourced from the Norwegian seas. It consists of the purest and most, most ethically sourced fish uh, oil in the world. And uh, there's a lot of dodgy stuff going on in the fish oil world. You definitely don't want to buy your fish oil from a bargain basement pharmacy brand. There are fish oils and there are fish oils. And uh, these guys have done incredible due diligence uh, to produce a truly best in class product. So we love it. My son is super happy to take his spoonful in the morning. We have the lemon flavored Arctic D cod liver oil because it's got that nice extra boost of the vitamin D, especially important in the winter months, wherever you are in the world, sometimes important all year round, depending on your vitamin D status, which as we know from my chat with Dr. Elisa Song on immune health a couple of months ago, Uh, looking at what we can do to build a super healthy, strong body in the face of a pandemic. Vitamin D is one of the big ones. So uh, I love that it's all in that one teaspoon of the um, product to get that daily dose of vitamin D as well. So I urge you to give it a go. It's available all around the world and I've popped a few places that you can get it from online in the show notes, but head to your local health shop and uh, chances are they've got it there for you. So uh, they are the sponsor all month and you have the chance to win a bottle of the Arctic D cod liver oil this week. All you got to do is head to the show notes and pop a little comment that you'd love to try it. And I will announce the winner next week so that you know, if you didn't win, you can go get yourself some, uh, uh, good luck to everybody who enters. And, uh, I really look forward to hearing how you enjoy this product. They provided in a few different forms. We take the lemon flavored Arctic D cod liver oil, uh, by the spoon. Um, but if the idea of a fatty liquid, it doesn't taste fishy at all, by the way, it just tastes lemony, uh, and oily. Um, if you prefer the idea of a capsule, they have that option. They also have gummies, uh, if that's the way you can get it into your kids, uh, and they need to be taking it. Some, uh, over the month, I'll be sharing a few, uh, reasons why you might want to look at a fish oil and chat to your practitioner, I also wanted to remind you that the Lotox Club is up, running, and a fabulous place to bring your Lotox life to life. And we have a fantastic month. Our theme, we have a different theme for our club members each month, and you get an ebook um, on all of the resources that pertain to that theme. So this month it's about clean indoor air in your home. And we've got a ton of resources in the ebook. We then have a self-care focus. So we have 
a miracle morning exercise, which is absolutely beautiful to do. And you receive the download for that. And then we have our community focus each month, which is a little three-day boost uh, chat topic on um, the topic of the month. And this month, it's all about um, sharing what we've done out of the ebook to improve our indoor air situation, whether that's reducing dust and what we did to do that, reducing humidity if there is an excess, uh, treating a leak so that mold doesn't grow in the wall. There's all sorts of different things we can do to improve our indoor air that doesn't always involve just buying appliances like filters and dehumidifiers. Uh, there's a whole bunch of uh, stuff we can do that's free or low cost at least. Um, and so that's super exciting. Really love this month's theme. And we also have a Q and a, um, with the lovely Sarah from plastic three Southeast Asia, who is a wonderful plastic reducing ninja and plastic free July ambassador. And because it's plastic free July, I'm looking forward to bringing her into the club space and talking about some of the trickier things that we might have to navigate when we've done all the big five, you know, we're not drinking plastic water bottles anymore. We're not using um, single-use cups uh, or single-use shopping bags. You know, the easy common ones that, sure, it was a bit of a habit change, but now it's about those little, little things like the sliced bread or the, oh my gosh, how am I going to not eat, um, you know, my favorite cheddar cheese or, you know, I could go on, but we're going to have a chat about that next level. And some of the hurdles people come up to and how to get over them and uh, continue to reduce our plastic footprint as an individual, as a family, as a community, as a world. Super important to do. So I'm really excited about July uh, and all of the stuff happening in the Low Tox Club. All you have to do is join via the website uh, or you can join via the show notes. I've got a link in there each week to help you find it super easily. And uh, it's just one annual payment, 49 Australian, which is about 29.30 US, uh, 28 euro-ish and 24 pounds. Uh, So it's low cost because I want to bring everybody in that wants to be a part of this, but uh, obviously helps us then be able to produce content for you, uh, coordinate and administrate everything, and also just keeps out trolls. It's wonderful. So if you've kind of been let down by zero waste groups or healthy eating groups and all the trolling that happens on the free internet, um, it's a tiny price to pay and you have this beautiful, calm, empowering space that is the Lotox Club. So I look forward to seeing you there. Now it is time to get stuck into this chat with the wonderful Teresa Cody. And I, um, as I said, I had come across her work um, by chance, but she is just an incredible woman, so accomplished. Uh, she is the past CEO of Bunting Cody B&H, past COO of Casey two of Canada's largest design firms, a director of the International Initiative for Sustainable Built Environments, uh, a member of the United Nations Environmental Program Global Alliance for Building and Construction. Uh, she received the YWCA Woman of Distinction Award in 99, the RBC 
Canadian Woman Entrepreneur Award in 2008 and made Canada's top 10 female entrepreneurs in 2010. She uh, lives in Vancouver. So it's funny, after having literally no Canadian guests that I can remember on the show, I've had the wonderful Corinne from uh, My Chemical Free House last week. And today, that bigger picture where we go from individual houses to thinking about how we build communities and cities and how we create uh, sustainable networks into the future, we have Canadian Teresa Cody. So enjoy the show and I cannot wait to hear uh, what your big takeaways and ahas were after listening to this week's show. Feel free to always share the show on Instagram and tag me, Lotox Life, so I can share it across to my stories and give you a big thank you. Enjoy, guys. Hi, Teresa. How are you? I'm well. Thank you, Alex. It's nice to meet you. I am absolutely thrilled to have you here. Very nice to meet you too. Uh, love your work. Have been watching, listening, reading uh, a few things as we've um, been researching to put today's show together. And uh, something that devastated me, actually, I- I'm going to start here. Uh, you shared it with an audience in one of your addresses. And it was this. In the past 30 years, we've taken more out of the earth than all of human history. And 70% of it is already back in landfill. So how do you have hope when you realise something like this? How do you recommend we have hope when you hear something like this because we're, we're hearing a lot of hard, hard things at the moment. I feel like a lot of things have been bubbling and it's all coming to the fore and demanding our attention, whether it's finally realising the difference between being not racist and an anti-racist, whether it's finally dealing with the fact that the way we're building our systems for everything from food to medical it ain't working, whether it's about the way we've designed our economy uh, to always be about bottom line profits, we're realizing it's not working. And that can be an extremely confronting thing for a generation of people to face. So how do you have hope on a personal level? You know, I look at that fact and many others differently. I see our power. I see just what an amazing species we are that we could have done so much in such little time. And if we only were more aware, we would be doing wonderful things instead of damaging things. Construction is a massive industry. So when you talk about more stuff being taken out of the earth in the past 30 years and in all of human history, half of that went into construction. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Construction employs 25% of the world's population is responsible for 25% of the world's GDP It is our most massive industry and it is our most impactful physically. And our earth is a physical entity. So our biggest impact on earth are our constructions. And when we think of construction, 
many people who are not like me, architects or engineers, think of buildings or their house or maybe the place they work. But when I think of construction and when my peers think of construction, we know that it's everything we build. So it's the roads and the pipes and utilities below them. It's the bridges and the dams and the power plants. It's the airports and the ports and all the office buildings and the houses. When you look around you, it's no surprise <laughs> that we've taken that much stuff out of the earth because you can see it all around you. And many times I think that the story has to be told because most people just aren't that engaged with construction. They see it as other. <laughs> and when you realize what a big impact construction has, you also begin to realize, well, maybe I am involved in some way in construction. You might be designing the furniture that goes into the buildings or the appliances or the paints or the draperies or the stones that uh, finish the plazas. Or you might be a designer or an engineer involved in pipelines or those constructions. And when you look at it that way and you realize that we've been doing all this together and we've never done it as intensely as we have done it in the past hundred years, We've been doing it because we're in an industrial age paradigm. And two drivers for the industrial age are productivity and financial capital. So construction has lost its meaning. We used to build what we needed. We used to build for social celebration, theaters. We used to build to support society, hospitals and schools. And we used to build to house people. Now we build for profit. Construction's a commodity. And we've commoditized construction to the point that we're overbuilt all over the world. We've built 1.2 or 20% more houses for every one family unit. So we have built 1.2 housing units. I'll say that again. We've built 1.2 housing units for every family unit in China, North America, and Europe. Wow. So that is amazing. Just so there's literally 20% of property out there is just sitting there empty. Just housing. Mm. Yes, sorry, housing and, property. Mm. And when you look at perhaps now we're realizing we're also overbuilt with the offices because mm. we're in the middle of a COVID pandemic and people are realizing, hmm, I don't work in a factory. I don't have to get in my car, drive downtown and punch the clock while my kids go to that industrial age school because their parents are in a factory. Why are we doing this? Why are we living as if mm. we all work in factories when we no longer do? Mm. And why is our city built to accommodate a social model based on factory work? It's because we're living with the heritage of the industrial age and we've actually built it. Mm. And so does your hope come from human brilliance? My hope comes from a very core belief that all of the people involved in construction have, and that is that we are here to build a better world for you. And if someone says that we're not building a better world, we're building a worse world, we'll stop and we'll change until we figure out a way to build a better world. Because that's our driver. That's why we get into construction. We, we believe we're building a better world. We believe 
we're making spaces cleaner and healthier and we're supporting work and learning and we're encouraging people to get together with our constructions and when we realize that we're harming the quality of life for not just humanity but the species that we share the planet with and the fundamental biomass of the surface of the planet we have gone through a huge awakening in our industry and there's already a shift happening so that's where i'm encouraged because i i believe in our driver which is to build a better world and i've seen in the past 10 years we've improved the energy efficiency of buildings by 90 percent so there are some massive shifts that we have managed to bring about that people might not be aware of and the direction that we're taking is following all the other industries that we are surrounded by so if you look at banking shopping education any other industry they're already in the digital age construction is still stuck in the industrial age so i believe that when we make that shift from the industrial to the digital age in construction it will be one of the biggest shifts that our humanity ever sees. And how is that going to play out? Like what does that actually mean to shift from the industrial to the digital age in an industry like that? So it means two things. One, the first thing it means is we now are able to decipher vast sets of data and understand how our planet works and how we work. So by that, I mean, we can now map our earth in ways we never could before. We can understand where the underground water courses are and what needs to be protected. We can understand um, the weather patterns and how we're impacting them. We can understand the ocean currents and track our pollution. We have a lot of power now with the technology to map and understand our planet. And we also, as part of that, have a, a lot of um, new technologies around construction that are coming out of the digital age. So instead of building what we call post and beam buildings, we'll be moving towards shell structures and they use a lot less material and are much more resilient. So that's the, the first real impact is our ability has increased a thousandfold in our understanding as a result of moving from the industrial to the digital age. But the other part of it is our, we build what we imagine. We get an idea and we build it. And our ideas are shaped by our culture and our beliefs and our knowledge. So we built cathedrals because we believed in a God in the sky and we put a little spire at the top to try and get closer. We marked sacred sites with ancient stone buildings. We, we build our beliefs and we have built our cities based on the industrial belief. And if you look at them just very abstractly, you will see the towers in the middle and you will see the lower density around the edge. We've actually built the pyramid of hierarchy that is the foundation of the industrial model where you have the senior people um, directing the people just below them and the people just below them 
and we live like that. And then we've also built these very, very dense cities where we can work together making stuff in the industrial age. But when you look at the model of the digital age, information age, it's a network. But when we truly embrace that, which we already have, <laughs> accepting construction, we're going to see a completely different development pattern. I believe we're going to see a network of smaller communities, little nodes, all interconnected in a web-like pattern across the landscape. And that will be much more sustainable because we will have a lower footprint. Tall buildings have a massive footprint high energy use intensity, high commuting and traffic. There's so many things about high buildings and, and dense cities that are not sustainable. Skyscrapers are not sustainable. We move to this networked model with these low human scale communities. We will be able to telecommute, but we'll still have everything we need in our communities and we'll still be able to get around it's just the attraction of living in the downtown core in a tower will be gone. The future is not more towers and more freeways and more machines flying around. The future is a network development and on the ground stewarding of the earth. Mm. And, and people reconnecting to the earth. I interviewed, um, Steve Nugent from uh, the the co-founder of Seren B uh, just out of Atlanta, Georgia, a beautiful mm. community, exactly what you're talking about, this networked idea, much smaller footprint, and they're able to actually have increased green land and, uh, and more people than in the average high-rise structured suburb. Uh, so they're proving that it's possible. Uh, That's by, the yeah. irony right there. The country with the lowest number of skyscrapers is Japan. Um, not that long ago, I think they had five. And yet Tokyo is a very dense city. They have more now. But density and high buildings are not necessarily linked. When you look at the most dense cities in the world, they are not the ones with the greatest number of skyscrapers and uh, they're not connected. And then of course, when you look at sustainability and green space, you lose those when you have these dense urban cores. So it's, it definitely, I'm not surprised at all. And it makes sense because we are servicing the buildings and not the people. That is such a great takeaway right there, servicing the buildings and not the people. Um, so let me ask you about the title of your book because I've, you know, come across a few books in my time. Once you're in your mid-40s, you've read a few. I've never come across one that seemed to have such a massive objective as rebuilding earth. <laughs> just no biggie you know <laughs> <laughs> well it's a, it's a play on words of course yeah because we are going to build and this is what is on the books right now the city a city the size of new york every month for the next 40 years wow so we are going to rebuild Earth, whether we do it consciously or unconsciously. 
So that's why I looked at what we're already doing, which is a lot of building. And I thought, well, rebuilding Earth is going to happen, but maybe we could rebuild it as we rebuild it and restore and renew and refresh it and take care of it. If we're going to continue building, which we are, and if we're going to build in the digital age model, which we will, because every other industry has already done that, then there's a good chance we'll be able to undo a lot of the harm that we've caused. And we will be able to restore the health of the planet and the species that are at risk and our own health. So to my mind, again, going back to your very first heart-wrenching fact that we've done so much and taken so much out of the earth already, we have the power. We're already making these massive changes to the planet. We are planet shapers. We need to take responsibility for that. Because until now, we've sort of felt that we're in a war with nature and that we have to tamp it down and control it or it's going to come and get us. But no, we are definitely shaping our planet and we have a massive impact on the health of Earth. So if we do that consciously, we can have different drivers, I think, is the real key here. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And just as you were describing how we have the chance to refresh and uh, and change things in the way we build, can I just ask a very practical question around that then? Like what happens when you've then got this big, tall apartment building, it's gotten shabbier and shabbier and it definitely needs to be knocked down and things need to change, but you don't have one person owning the whole thing. There's lots of different property owners in there. Like what happens to all of the investments that people have made in this, in this remodeling and, and refreshing? It's such a tough question. There are going to be huge disruptions in the future. And if you are a young person right now, and if you are making choices, you want to look at buildings as a depreciating asset and land as an appreciating asset. We probably, hopefully, will be able to maintain the larger buildings that we already have. There is a generation of building that was not well built. Most of the buildings from the 70s will not last. Um, Most of the buildings in the 2000s were built to better standards and they have a better chance of lasting. But remember that when you have a building and you take away the the shell, you're left with the structure and buildings are adaptable. You can have a building that was intended for use as an apartment building or a hotel and you can convert it to hospital or care you can convert it to um, community center there are other things we can do with these buildings but the truth is i believe that many buildings will come down and it's not the first time that's happened and again that's a tragic waste when you talk about 70 percent of it all back in landfill it's because these buildings are coming down yeah they're being built like mobile phones sometimes just not to last and 
mm-hmm. um, as someone who's looking for uh, somewhere to rent right now, um, it's it's really quite amazing how badly built some of these buildings are, and you just think. Yeah. How how do we, how have we gotten here? Um, where are the yeah. checks and balances? Yeah, no, we really, you know, what's happening is the people who are building are not the people who are owning and living in the buildings. So that connection of care is gone. And the people who need to house themselves or find workspace accept what is on offer. But as we move forward, I believe, especially after this COVID, when I wrote this book last year, and it's just come out now, but, you know, I was writing it before it came out. I honestly thought that the ideas I had in here that I have spent a lifetime in my career developing would take another lifetime to manifest. I never thought we'd see a pandemic where everyone's locked down and thinking, hmm, I need to be in a place with a garden. Hmm, I need social connection. People are rejecting the spaces they're in if they don't offer daylight, garden, community. And they're also realizing I can work from, I don't have to work downtown, I can work from a remote location. So I can leave New York City and find a little cottage somewhere and live with my family there and immerse myself into this new community and I will still have a great life. I will have a better life. I won't have to compromise and live in a small apartment with a poor kitchen and no access to green space. I'll have all that. I'll have more space. I'll probably pay less and I'll just have a better life. What am I doing? And there's, there's, that's already happening. And I, I think it's very exciting, even though COVID is a terrible tragedy. One of the silver linings of this world event is people are realizing that they don't need to live in the downtown core. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely, there's some really interesting statistics coming up already. Uh, I follow the French news being half Frenchy myself. Something like 20% of Parisians under 35 who live in the heart of Paris. And I've seen these shoebox apartments. My cousins have spent their university years in them. Um, They are thinking this is not the way forward. Um, And it's, it's gonna, that's just such a huge grassroots impact, isn't it? On the construction industry. It is. And don't forget the other part of it is the workspaces. We have all these office towers where the landlords are now struggling with tenants who can't pay because business is down, but who are also wondering why they have so much space for every employee and for every employee's car in many cases. And why they are paying that massive overhead on a building when they could just turn around and give it to the employee. Yeah. So do you see cities becoming more affordable as a kind of uh, repercussion of that, that sprawling that you predict? You know, we are all so different and there will always be people who love to live right in the heart of it and want to experience the 
what you can only get in a great world city like New York or London. So more affordable relative to where they might have gone had we continued with the industrial age model, yes. But ridiculously less affordable than they are now, no, probably it's not going to happen. There's still so many amenities in the cities, but the, I believe the opposite will happen. I believe that the demand for houses and smaller communities will go up. Those properties will increase in value. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely happening regionally where I live outside of Sydney. Um, I'm, I'm a Sydney girl through and through. I am one of those people who loves to be in the center of things. Um, but, uh, we have a lot of family just outside of Sydney. And, and so I get the best of both worlds, which is beautiful. I think that's probably why I'm then able to live in the heart of things. Yes, I know yes. I can escape whenever I want. That's I'm very right. fortunate. And that's um, very common too, that mix, mm. you know, of the excitement and then just the, we all need to restore ourselves in nature. We do. Oh, that mm-hmm. I know. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I'm fortunate that we, I mean, you know, I'm in an apartment building right now in an Airbnb while we look for a place and I'm mm-hmm. looking out on a huge park with massive trees and it's beautiful and green. I definitely don't feel cut off from the land. So I think, you know, there's going to be an interesting shift in um, city design. If Do you think part of it is actually small governments, uh, you know, down to the sort of county and council levels, depending on what you call them, where you're from, um, starting to realise the importance of that green space and doing some local government work to restoring our spaces? Yeah, I do. And when you look at the great cities that people love, like Sydney, Vancouver, where I live, there are models for how to integrate people into nature, you have those beautiful beaches, you have the park, you have the um, botanical gardens. It's just a wonderful city because of the green spaces. And Vancouver is the same. One of the things that we're starting to see, cities like Vancouver, they're beginning to map their amenities, their environmental amenities, and look at how can we, how we can connect natural corridors so that people can enjoy them, but they can stay um, vibrantly alive. One of the principles I have is um, restore natural connections. And what that is, um, we, we don't, again, we all live in these city blocks, right? And there's, when I first started thinking about the patterns that we make on the land, and I really looked at this grid that we've just stamped on the land, It brought to mind a phrase, which is, you might have heard it, islands are where species go to die. You heard that? Yeah. And each city block is actually an island. And there is no way when we bound land with paved roads that anything on that land can really thrive. It might survive, but it's never going to thrive. And it's certainly not going to evolve. Nature wants to live in ribbons. Nature wants to live in rivers, mountain ranges, forest corridors, coastlines, nature lives in ribbons. So 
we are starting to map the ribbons. We are starting to map the underground waterways and the forest corridors above them. We're starting to map the natural coastlines, the mountain ranges. And we're starting to realize that if we can change our development pattern to run alongside these and allow that connection of ecosystem to happen, then we will heal the earth. But at the same time, we'll be living right next to a forest corridor or a healthy river or a beautiful coastline. Yeah. So many, um, so many parallels between what you're talking about and the state of health of the average human these days, you know, we push on, we push on, we keep going, we keep ignoring the thing, we throw a Tylenol at something, we, you know, maybe, you know, all that kind of stuff, uh, all the different medications that we might take to just keep trying to be able to continue when actually we need to try and figure out why we're struggling to continue in the first place. That's right. That's mm. right. We're, we're eroding our health on so many levels emotionally, mentally, spiritually, as a creative person, I'm fascinated by studies around creativity. And study after study has shown that children in nature take time to daydream. And they're very um, intuitive, but they're also able to come up with new and fresh ideas. Children in paved park um, parks become competitive. They don't daydream. They use a different part of their brain to establish hierarchy. And part of that is when a child is in a forest, that wildland restores that child's empathy to living things, but also that child's confidence in its ability to survive. Because it will look at a little tiny bird or a bug and make the connection that this little tiny bird or bug is okay. It's doing okay. I'm okay. There's, there are those subtle connections that we get when we're rewilding ourselves. that we, we lose when we're in that really harsh, barren environment. The other thing that happens when we're in the city that I don't think, again, <laughs> I have a chapter on that. It's around noise. We really don't pay enough attention to not just noise pollution, but the kinds of noise we're exposed to. So when cars and trucks rumble by, they have that low sound that our subconscious equates with danger, danger of earthquake, danger of a stampede. Cars are triggering alarms all the time through our body. Yeah. And when we don't have nature sounds, we have no reference. We don't know if we're safe because we don't hear the birds singing. We don't hear the background rustle of a normal level of wind in the trees. We don't hear what's going on in nature. And we don't have that reassurance that. And we've been robbed of our instinct. Yes, but our instincts are still there. It's only been a hundred years since we've moved out of that. So all of our subliminal processing of all of these views is still going on. And we're building up anxieties because of lack of information around 
the stability of our environment and too much information around all these machines, like even in an office building. Uh, studies have shown, and we know this, and that's why we designed the decibel level of our equipment within a certain range, because when we go to a, a certain lower range, um, people feel very anxious because you can always hear the background hum of the HVAC and the lights and the pump and the fans. And we know that there are a few hums that just make people crawl out of their skin. Wow. It's crazy, isn't it? So it's not that we've been robbed of our instincts. It's just that our instincts are now reacting to unnatural things and the frequency and intensity of those unnatural things is keeping us in a mode of high alert that we do not actually need to be in because there is no saber-toothed tiger around the corner at the water cooler in our office building. We're going to be just fine. Yeah. So a big part of the reason you relax when you leave the city and you go to your family place in the country is because of the background noises. Mm. And I mean, it's just so timely that someone down on the street there has fired up the leaf blower, <laughs> you know, those yeah. things. That I'm just <laughs> like, oh, well, this is perfect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it, there are so many things about our world. My first principle is designed for life, not machines. And in my career, I've built companies, I've run large companies, all design companies. And when I work with people from all walks of life, whether they're a client or staff or another um, consulting group that we're working with, when I say design for life, not machines, make that your first principle, it's really easy to look at the design and go, oh, wait a minute. I've paved all this so that the fire truck can get in there once in a blue moon. <laughs> I built this massive parkade when maybe with car share and these other things, I don't need to spend all that money on that. And we can put more into what the people need. When you turn it around and you actually design for life and not machines, then you save money. And, that's and you use less materials. You do. And the, the amenities you're building grow because they're natural. There's a principle that we've all heard when we take, you know, high school physics. It's called entropy. So all machines basically work, break down, fall apart and become garbage. That is not a life principle. That's a principle of Newtonian mechanics and physics related to built things. Other things as well, sorry. There's another principle called autopoiesis. And that is what nature does. It's self-generating, self-renewing. So you put a little bit of energy in, you plant a seed, and before you know it, you have a huge plant with a whole bunch of seeds that self seeds and continues to grow and refresh itself and renew itself and rebuild itself with no new input from any of us. And that's where this, the real savings is. And not only do we not have to pay to replace all that equipment and all that stuff, we get the added benefit that that healthy ecosystem gives us. 
So one of the things that's always baffled me is why when we suggest putting in green space instead of paved space or hard landscaping, developers balk and they think it's going to be more expensive, it's an amenity, and they want to ask the city for something in order for them to provide this when in fact the green spaces are the least expensive spaces we can provide. It is less expensive to have a green belt than a road. You don't have to repave, resurface, refurniture a green belt. Mm. And that's so it's so true isn't it you think oh gosh yeah. a garden is something extra we have to add i mean when you put it like that it is just ludicrous so yes yeah and the <laughs> other thing is when you combine the two it's worse so when we have a paved road and then we have trees on both sides then we end up having to keep clearing the road and if we just let the leaves fall and let the trees do what they want to do, it's much more enjoyable for people. Um, yeah, we have 70, 70% of our city is paved road and lane and plaza. And that is outside of the building footprint. So there is not much left that's green space, very little. And all of that we pay for with our tax because we have to keep it's a huge Resort. maintenance bill, right? Yes, yeah. Hmm. Now, of course, there is lands, uh, there is maintenance to landscape, but our concept of landscape is also distorted. It's very industrial. It's very highly managed, contained, and juxtaposed to um, juxtaposed against these roads and other hard surfaces. But when we stop that and we just allow an actual rewilding of the city which is different from a landscaping of the city mm, it's exactly the word i was going to use in the next question so um it's uh it's great that you went there with rewilding and i think that's um mm -hmm. it's much more appealing too mm -hmm. well we're all born wild and we mm. just forget that sometimes yeah absolutely um, so something you're passionate about, like me, is the quest to measure success by more than the GDP. Um, and uh, that's gross domestic product to anyone uh, who was like, oh, what's that acronym? Um, what are your thoughts on what this has done to us as a world um, to measure success so narrowly? Because just some of these little things you're talking about seems so obvious uh, an improvement and yet because of the modeling economically that we've all measured everything against they're seen as uh, added complications mm -hmm. yeah one i think one of the saddest outcomes of the industrial age is the way we measure everything against a monetary metric so if you look at what you value most in your life, maybe you have a cat, maybe you have a dog, maybe you have a partner, maybe you have a brother or sister or people in your life. Do you value them based on how much money somehow they give you? No, that never comes into it. Somehow we lost our way with GDP. And well, and GDP the statistically in employment, 
what keeps people staying in a job, money is very rarely the first thing on the list too. Yeah. We, we obviously need a balance. Yeah. So there is, you know, we're never going to be heard if we say, uh, get rid of money or get rid of productivity. And that's not the way future, uh, of the future either. There is something that was developed in Canada where I'm from and it's called the comprehensive wealth model. And I really love this because it values five capitals. It values the financial capital and the production capital, which are both the two values of the GDP. But it also values human capital. Human capital is human health and well being. And you can measure that very easily with all the statistics we have. It also measures and values social capital. Social capital is around resilience. If there is an event, will your people pull together like the Japanese did in Fukushima, or will they pull apart immediately after, like we saw after um, Katrina? Social capital is community resilience, and there are many factors that go into it. And the last, but in many ways most important, because without this we have nothing, is environmental capital. Is your water clean? Is your air fresh? Do you have lots of plants? Can you measure your forests? All of that is what gives countries wealth. And when we erode it and destroy it, don't value it, and put a zero into the equation on our GDP, if a country erodes its human, social, and environmental capitals and focuses only on the production and the financial of the GDP, that country is not wealthy. No, not in the true sense of the word. Mm -hmm. mm. Uh, and so given we are so tied up in this, it's almost like you know, the person who buys the $10,000 appliance or the emperor with no clothes where you've spent so long convincing yourself of your truth and your belief and you're so wrapped up in the system. How do we safely, uh, and by safely I mean from a mental health and physical health and financial health perspective, start to reprioritise? What are your thoughts on, on what that might look like? I think we're in the middle of one right now. The pandemic has turned our world on its head and it has helped us all to look at our community and decide that we do or we do not like living there. Look at our living space. Look at our work and commuting habits. Look at our families and our friends and reevaluate our choices. And nobody else can tell us anymore that this is important or that this has value because we're living it now. We're all isolated. We're all living our own truth where, you know, the place we chose to be, the people we chose to be with, um, the work we chose to do, and we're deciding whether or not this is a good fit. And many people are finding that it's not a good fit and they're making choices to leave what they had been told was appropriate because of this industrial age paradigm. Go to what feels right. And 
I believe that if we just really understand ourselves first and how our earth wants to work, we will know what is right. And we will make those changes with confidence because one of the reasons we often don't want to change is because we are afraid of loss. And when we realize that what we're valuing has no merit and it isn't improving our lives, then we can let go. And we will do this at a national, a state, and a municipal, and a community, and a personal level. We will reevaluate our values. And that's, a, that's not a play on words. That's literally what we're going to do. We're going to reevaluate our values after this COVID crisis. And I believe you're going to see some much better thinking coming out of this. Because the first thing that we've realized is how much we need green space and fresh air. Yeah. Absolutely. There was nothing like taking the daily walk that you were allowed to take during the heightened lockdown stage that we were in. Um, it just felt like freedom. It felt like you were literally plugging in to what you needed to then get through the next 24 hours healthily. Yeah. Especially with all the built up anxieties. And then we also, I think as part of that, we realized how little we needed to go in and out of the office every day and how much time we were wasting doing that. Yes, we like our connection with our work family, but we have all learned how to Zoom. Uh, we have all learned how to spend more time doing the things that matter and just focusing on those very essential get-togethers that have to happen. I think we've really learned a lot in the past six months. Hmm. I would agree. It's definitely given us pause for re-evaluation. Um, and, and I know there are some really progressive councils and counties also doing that work on a, a local government level. There are a lot of, uh, I've seen some interesting interviews with uh, some of the governors over in the U.S., um, starting to think about how things might be able to be done differently and better for people and planet in the future. Um, yeah, really interesting times. Um, so we've, I think um, it'd be really nice to just throw some attention at your incredible book uh, before we wrap up today, because there's, I mean, there's so much good stuff in there. And obviously of the 12 principles of conscious construction that you, you go through, we can't cover all of them. Um, but what, what is one or maybe two that are really dear to you that you think people aren't thinking about enough, or it's not in the common, uh, discussions or arguments and debates that are happening as, uh, many thoughts are thrown in the ring right now about how the future needs to be constructed. What, what do you think isn't being talked about enough that's one of your 12 principles that you would like to see more light shed on and more light shone on, rather? Yeah, I, there are two things in particular that beyond atmosphere and temperature rise and emissions that we've heard a lot about my sense of all this is 
people feel that's a bit abstract. There's not a lot they really understand about what they can really do. Um, so two things I'd like to share with the listeners are around water and energy because they're very fundamental um, and help us understand again how our entire blue planet works and why fossil fuels aren't all bad. So water, um, and again, this is something I never really thought of, but then one day it just hit me. Without water, there's no life. So when I say design for life, not machines is my first principle. Design for life, well, what does that mean? That means protect all waters and wetlands, discharge nothing to the ocean. But what does that really mean? Because without fresh water, there is no life on land. And we're on land. And what I didn't realize was that 97% of the Earth's water is salt. Only 3% is fresh and 2% is ice. So 1% of all the water on the planet is fresh water and that includes all the rivers all the aquifers all the lakes all the types of fresh water you can think of that's one percent of the water on the planet and we waste it all the time we waste it pouring concrete in construction we waste it washing our windows on the buildings construction uses a lot of water like we think oh i'm going to turn my tap off when i brush my teeth and then you look out the window and you see someone power washing we, because we have all these hard surfaces and these unnatural materials that we use on our buildings, we have a lot of water waste. So that to me is the very first thing that people should remember is how precious fresh water is and how we really should not be wasting that. And connected to that, um, and I don't think a lot of people know this one, but when a surface does not absorb water, as far as nature is concerned, it's a desert. So when rain falls onto the sand in a desert, it just, nothing happens. When rain falls onto a city, it's, it's not, nothing happens. There's no greenery there, it's just paved. So as far as nature is concerned, our cities are deserts. And by 2050, 80% of us are going to live in coastal cities. So we're building not just cities, but we're building coastal cities. We're all moving to the coast. And what that does is it breaks that ocean, atmosphere, land cycle. So when a cloud forms over the ocean and rains on the city, instead of that being absorbed by biomass and re-aspirated into moisture and clouds that then move inland and rain on the next belt where that moisture is re-aspirated again and so on and so on 400 miles inland the first cycle is broken at the city boundary on the coast and that's why we're having the wildfires and that's why forests up to 400 miles inland are dying of drought. So if we can remember that our cities are functioning as deserts and start greening them up. So again, it goes back to that same thing. Lose the roads, you know, plant. And the more you can plant, the more you will trick nature into thinking that our cities are actually green spaces because they will be. 
and the rain cycle will be protected and restored and we will have a much healthier um, biomass all inland. And then again, water, I really believe blue is the new green. We've all heard about the pollution in the ocean. A large part of that pollution is from construction. So we should not discharge anything to the ocean. So that, that's a principle that I have. It's my principle number two. Protect all water and wetlands and discharge nothing to the ocean. Yeah, it's huge, isn't it? And so do you have some practical things that people could do to start? Uh, obviously, greening is a huge part of that. But just that mind shift almost feels like we need to go um, back, like we went down to level two water restrictions horrific drought in this country coupled with the worst wildfires we've ever had in this summer just gone uh and so we're really um there were some really interesting discussions happening with people on various message boards on facebook etc where people were talking about creative ways to conserve water to create verge gardens you know and to really start shifting on the N equals one level, which I think we often forget. We get so upset with our politicians and everything we don't see happening right up top that we can sometimes spend so much time arguing about everything that's wrong and how it should be. And we forget that we are this powerful N equals one thing that could just do so much. And so I just started thinking, oh, yeah, what could I do? And you think about the time that a shower takes to get to hot for you to step into. So I just started putting a bucket under it and that was the way we watered all of our plants and our herb garden, you know, and just tiny things that all of us should be doing. That's not a tiny thing. But so, this is the thing, right? It, it, it feels tiny, but we need to talk um, about the, the piece around how that becomes huge if as a collective we do it. But what you just said there has two things in it and they're opposite. One was you said... Uh, we all want to conserve water in Sydney because of drought, so we're going to zero scape. And the other one was, I'm going to shorten my shower, put a bucket under it, and use that to water plants. What we need is greenscape. The way you start a desert is you just create a, a patch of sand, and the sand will grow and create more desert. The way you stop a desert is you plant, and the plants will grow and take back the desert. So what we need to do is use the water that we're not drinking after the shower, after the, you know, the recycled water. Um, we have different levels of filtration. We have tertiary, primary, secondary. Uh, primary um, water filtration gives you water that is good enough to irrigate. We can use and reuse and reuse our fresh water we can desalinate to have fresh water but whatever we do we should plant and water and the more plants we have the more the water cycle which is that combination of ocean atmosphere land will restore itself and you will have the regeneration of the biomass on the land you you won't have the droughts because when you have cities and we have this in vancouver we have forest fires and a big part of it is because the edge, our coastline, is all concrete. And we need to really green that up to get that um, 
wonderful cycle all the way 400 miles in. So again, when we talk about what should we do, a lot of people are saying, well, I'm going to plant rocks in my garden or I'm going to have just cacti or succulents or whatever. But what we're not doing is the right thing. We, we need to plant more and we need to keep the water on the surface. That's the key. Once the water is in a drain or under the ground, it doesn't come back out for a thousand years. So fresh water has to be kept on the surface. That is such a powerful point. And, uh, and you're right. It's not a tiny thing. Um, I guess it's perception really. And you, you just think, oh, but how could that make a difference? But it is always about then if the collective realization is how powerful that thing is, then it becomes a huge thing. Mm -hmm. And then we're starting to see it in communities all over. Groups can get together, petition the local authority and say, you know what? We don't need our lane. We're going to rip it out and plant it. And if everyone agrees, we're seeing that over and over. Um, and all you have to do is kind of work out, well, if there's a fire, how do we access it? But for most communities, um, the access on the main street. So you can have this sort of super block idea with these connectors across um, for, you know, the connected forest corridor thing. Um, and the super block has the shared garden all through it. Wow. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. And that's something people can do. That's, that's literally, and it builds community too. It's not. Just I was just about to say that's yeah. a huge mental health impact as well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Massive. And so talk to me about energy. It's not often you hear not all fossil fuels are bad. Please explain. <laughs> well, <laughs> we, we've got a, a real problem. It's true with emissions. And we had originally targeted 300 and, well, 350 parts per million at 1.5 degrees. And then we said, well, 400 could get us two degrees. And there's all that math that make people think, well, I'm just going to not breathe, you know. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's true. It's a very disengaging uh, yeah. um, rhetoric, isn't it? It is. And I think part of it is physics and chemistry where you look at, you know, if you plant a tree, well, a tree doesn't become carbon neutral for 20 years. That, that's how long it takes a forest to stop emitting more carbon dioxide than it absorbs. It's, it's not a simple thing. But what is simple is the physics of fuel. So when you look at the way we're going, we're going to what we call distributed energy systems. So the central plants of the industrial age, the big hydroelectric dam, the big coal-fired electric generating plant, all of that hopefully is part of our past. Our future is going to be what we call distributed energy because we lose so much of the energy in the line, the pipe or the line, um, what do we call it? Dam to plug. <laughs> so, you know, when, when you're trying to produce energy in a really remote location and then get it somewhere, there's a lot of line loss. So it's not very efficient. If we can have what we call renewable ready buildings and we can use wind or solar locally, there is no line loss. You're getting the power exactly where you need it. But what 
everyone needs to understand is that there's a big difference between the energy you get from electricity and the energy you get from fossil fuels. Fossil fuels burn. They want to generate heat. So they're very efficient when all they're doing is producing heat. So we now have boilers that are in furnaces that are 98, 99% efficient. So they have almost no emissions. And they're a very clean, neat, um, efficient transfer of energy from material to energy. So when you look at natural gas, for instance, that is a fossil fuel that I believe has a place in our future. And what's interesting about natural gas is we may not even need to pipe it in. We may get it from our waste. So we have these waste to energy systems and what we can do is our waste can convert to methane, which is a highly volatile gas, but it's also very efficient at giving us heat. So if we can remember that when you're looking for something to cook with, when you're looking for something to heat with, you really should be looking at a burning fuel. And you want to look at a really efficient, clean burning fuel so that wouldn't be coal and that wouldn't be a lot of the other oils. But natural gas um, and the methanes, yeah, they're very efficient. And you're not doing a lot of heating and cooking. But for that piece of the work you're doing, for that energy that you do need, that is your best fuel. Then and you so look at can I just um, clarify yeah. something there? So because often when we talk about natural gas, we talk about gas as a fuel. Um, mm-hmm. What we're talking about is being, you know, passionate in protecting Indigenous spaces in this country and not fracking and not extracting, mm-hmm. etc. So it sounds to me like what you're suggesting is we actually take a look at all the options that would be defined as a natural gas because within that framework, within that aspect of energy, some are actually... Um, very clean and don't involve environmental destruction. That's right. That has to be the first metric. So if we understand the physics of heat, where a burning fuel is going to give us heat a lot faster than an electric fuel, not a fuel, it's generating electricity. Um, Then we look at what fuels are the most sustainable and least environmentally damaging. And that really is a local answer. There are many parts of the planet where there's natural gas just right underneath. And that's the fuel you want to use. There are other places where there's a lot of farming and waste and you get the methane and you should use that. If you are in a city, you've got all that garbage. Why ship it out to a landfill? Just get the methane out of it. There's definitely... um, Some interesting recycling can be explored there. Yeah. Definitely. Um, And you can make pellets that burn at 99% as well. So there's there's just that connection. I'd like people to understand that those fossil fuels, um, those burning fuels are the things we want to consider and very high efficiency for heat. So we now have systems that give us that kind of efficiency but electricity most of the renewables the the solar panels the wind um, the tide all of those they are generating electricity electricity is what we use for lighting data and moving things like cars (laughs) 
and elevators. So electricity is very efficient when it's turned into motion or data, it, it converts. So again, we want to look at what energy we're using and what it's good for. So to just have a blanket statement that, oh, we're not going to have any emissions, we're not going to use any burning fuels is not the best approach. It's a deeper understanding of how energy is translated into useful either data, light, motion, or heat. And, and starting to think about our waste streams, not mm-hmm. as an end point, but as the beginning of a fossil fuel, which really I, I, you don't see talked about often. This is No, and it yeah. really works when you have, it's distributed energy sounds like energy that's far away, but no, distributed energy actually means local energy. Mm. It's a network pattern that I talked about earlier. It's yes. little nodes of energy all over your community. So do you, it feels to me like one of the issues that we then have in actually carving out useful and uh, effective paths forward is this oversimplification of things into black and white arguments where, you know, you see it in dietary um climate discussion all meat is bad plant-based is has a big halo on it uh or you see it in all fossil fuel is bad it's all got to be renewables and it feels to me like by trying to put everybody into these two camps once again and i see this so often time and again in my work uh helping move our community forward is that the magic lies in the complex discussion of the gray area of things yeah and the genius is always in trying to make the complex comprehensible and we have to help people understand that the engineers um the builders the architects they have something to say and really we have not as an industry stood up yet (laughs) We need to, just like the doctors and the researchers stood up during COVID and said, this is what we need to do. And we all listened. And I think now's the time for our industry, the construction industry. And like you say, it's massive. It's a quarter of the world's population to just stand up and say, this is what we need to do. Because a lot of this stuff is known to us, but for whatever reason, we don't feel empowered yet to to uh, sorry we don't feel empowered yet to make these changes happen yeah absolutely and and i think it could that be because the louder voices are just keeping keeping uh, construction disempowered at this point it's all about food and energy and that's what we're talking about so that's what it is um rather than again bringing in all the different shades of um cause effect and potential solutions yeah it's also our industry is not something that people bump into every day so people think well i eat meat or i don't every day and they kind of feel like i can demand organic eggs or i can demand a meatless burger 
but they don't feel for whatever reason, but they can demand a different kind of built environment. But of course we can. It's just not as immediate and as, you know, as often. So of course we can stand up and say, we don't want cars in our community. We want them out of here and we will have borders where the cars come to. We don't want high rises. Our community plan doesn't have high rises in it. Why are you rezoning? No more rezoning. Like we can stand up and we can speak up. And until now, I think everyone has been kind of passive thinking that, well, it's not that bad. Something else will happen. I'll do my little bit, I'll recycle, I'll do something and it'll be okay. But we have a whole generation coming up now who are like jumping up and down saying it's not okay. And it's really not okay. You know, our oceans are approaching that tipping point where they've absorbed 90% of the excess heat from our emissions. They're, they're getting close to unable to continue to absorb. So the only way that the scientists tell us that we can get through this is to restore the health of the land that we're on. Mm. Absolutely. Gosh, uh, Teresa, I feel like I could talk to you for another three hours if we had that time. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to put my video back on now that I've seen you. I feel kind of, yeah. Uh, there yeah. we go. Thank you so much for joining us in today's podcast. Uh, I know, I know so many of our listeners are going to love that chat. Um, mind expansive as opposed to oversimplifying and trying to pick sides. Uh, it's just something I encourage people to do every day in the work that we do. Um, it's a huge part of why I bring the guests on we do to create expansive conversation and consider all possibilities rather than oversimplifying and shooting ourselves in the foot by deciding and staying in one camp. It's, um, it, it's extremely, um, it's an extremely breakable model, that one. Um, we need a more flexible model in everything. Part of it is not blaming ourselves for our mistakes. We need to just embrace ourselves and realize that we're always doing the best we can from where we are. And we have been in the industrial age model for so long, and we did a great job at that. But now that's over. And we are all in the, the digital age all over the world, and we're doing a great job at that. Like, look at us. We're talking halfway around the planet. It's incredible. It's an 11-hour time difference. And it's, you know, you're right there. So what we've already achieved is amazing. And we need to have faith in that, that we have good intentions and tremendous ability. So if we just focus on the problem, we can get it done. Mm, we can. And it reminds me of um, one of my favourite books, which is by a farmer, actually, Alan mm. Savory on holistic management. I don't know if you've come across his book. No, um, but that, yeah. It's another one I will be sending you. I know <laughs> okay. you'll love it. I know you'll yeah. love it. I love uh, that old word stewardship. Exactly. And the thing that Alan talks about is as you start to consider the holistic model, like what do we want this all to feed into and how do we want it to all work, then it's much easier to make decisions on all the parts of that model. And it doesn't mean that you're going to, your first decision on the way that you move forward is going to be right. 
and perfect. It actually just means that you've started considering the whole. And so you're always reevaluating, checking in. Maybe we could tweak that. Maybe actually if we put more green space over there, that would be getting the effect that we want. Exactly how architects work. We frame it. We set it out. And that's what this book, Rebuilding Earth, 12 Principles of Conscious Construction is. It's a framework. Every one of those principles is a truth. And they will be true in a hundred years. They were true a hundred years ago. They'll be true in a thousand years. They're truths. So if we use that framework of truth about how our earth is working, we can't go wrong. We can tweak and learn and work together as we go, but we won't be on the wrong path. Mm. That's right. That is yeah, 100% exactly it. Yeah. Oh, what a beautiful place to finish. Thank you so there much you once again yeah. for joining us. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social on Instagram at Lotox Life or one word, or my personal Instagram uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart S T U A R T. On Facebook, you can find us at Lotox Life. Uh, and of course, lotoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a Lotox life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Lotox Club for just $49 Australian per year, which is about $29.30 US, about €27 and about £25. You get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lotoxlife.com, hit the explore tab and you'll see join the Lotox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.